Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. As, as powerful and effective in revealing Jesus to us um, as the book of Revelation. That's the whole idea. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's a revelation of His power. It's a revelation of, of, his, of his intent and of His character and His love and, and this mighty God that we serve. And uh, we are just excited about what God is saying to us through this book. If you have your Bibles... Then you can take them out right now. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation 10 and Revelation 11 today. We just encourage you to get stuck in to the Word, and, and we've been learning so much. God has been saying so much to us um, through this very powerful book. Um, so we've been looking at the book of Revelation, and it is a book that a lot of people struggle with, a lot of prophetic language, a lot of uh, uh, you know things that if you don't understand all of Scripture, because you need the Bible to interpret the Bible, and uh, but when you go through it and when you draw back that curtain um, and you begin to understand it, it shows you the thing behind the thing. It shows you the spiritual reality of the world that we live in, and we need this because as a society and as a, uh, as a people, as a human race, we have become increasingly naturally minded, naturalistic in our thinking, carnally minded, and carnally minded not just in terms of sin, but in terms of a lack of a spiritual perspective. It's like we no longer understand spiritual things. We no longer discern spiritual things. The Bible says that it takes a spiritual man to discern spiritual things. But to the natural man, spiritual things are foolish. They don't make sense. And so oftentimes when you read the Bible and you read the things, people have this perception or this idea that, that unless I can taste it or see it or feel it or touch it or perceive it with one of my five senses, then it cannot be real. Then it cannot exist. And so from a spiritual perspective, we've actually gone numb. The world has become increasingly blind and increasingly deaf and increasingly numb to the reality of the spiritual realm and the world in which we live in. And uh, it reminded me of when I went for an operation on my right knee after um, injuring it and tearing my, my ACL ligament, and they had to operate on the knee. Uh, and, and, you know, in the process of this operation that they did, the surgery that they did, um, they must have nicked one of my, my nerves um, because for the past year and a bit, I haven't had any feeling on the, on the front of my shin. So I can feel that I'm supposed to feel something. I don't know if you've ever felt this. Like, you know that you're supposed to be feeling something there, but it just is kind of numb. You just, you don't quite feel it the way that you know that you're supposed to. And in this way, it's like the spiritual nerve of our world has been nicked. And they don't perceive things spiritually anymore. They don't understand things spiritually anymore. There's this, just this numbness. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, it speaks about the difference between two different kinds of sight. Spiritual perception versus just natural perception. And in 2 Corinthians 4 17, it says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look, we do not look, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. It's saying that we're supposed to look at things that you cannot see. 
How can you possibly look at things that are unseen? For the things which are seen are temporary. They're temporal. They don't last forever. But the things that are not seen are eternal. There is a greater reality, a spiritual reality. And how do you see the things that you cannot see? Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and he says, Lord, enlighten the eyes of their heart. Allow their heart, their spiritual man and spiritual woman to see things, to perceive things, to understand things, to discern things that their natural beings cannot perceive. This is possible for us when we're awakened in Christ. Christ. We are able to, to see, see things. Earlier on in that scripture in 2 Corinthians, it says that the reason why the world cannot see these things is because the God of this age, Satan himself, has blinded the world, placing a veil over their eyes so that they cannot see the truth, so that they cannot know the truth, so that they cannot discern the Spirit. But in Christ, it says, the veil is taken away. We're able to perceive and know the things of God. We get spiritual sight. So whenever spiritual things are discussed, like we're going to discuss today, it sounds ludicrous to the natural mind, to the carnal mind. But in doing this, we deny a very important truth. When you're unable to see the spiritual, we forget this one thing, that everything you now see including the world outside, including every plant and tree and, and, and sky and, and, and cloud and, and the stars in the evening sky, everything that you see was made out of that which is unseen. Because God, who is spirit, created all things. And so everything emanates forth from a spiritual realm into a physical realm. And in Hebrews 11.3, it says this, it says, by faith, with spiritual sight, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The things that you now see wasn't, didn't come from the vis visible realm. So there's a deeper, a deeper truth. Often when the church talks about angels and talks about demons and talks about Satan and, 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 and talks about heaven and talks about hell and talks about spiritual realms, it's quickly dismissed as fantastical by those that don't have faith. But for the believer, for those who know the Scriptures, for those who through faith have been given spiritual sight and have the ability to perceive things spiritually, we are able to understand the reality of the spiritual realm. We are able to understand how the spiritual realm impacts on our lives, how angels and demons impact our lives, how, how the church often faces resistance from demonic forces of this world. And we're also able to understand that God is able to move powerfully on our behalf through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of angelic forces, the hosts of heaven. So I'm going to share a message with you today entitled, The Presence of Angels the presence of angels. And Hebrew 1 verse 14 says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Are not the angels ministering spirits? These are angelic forces, are created beings, spiritual beings that God created to work on behalf of the church to speak to the church, to encourage the church, to, to send messages to the church. And we don't ever get involved with, with 
over-amplifying, if I can call it that, the, the importance of angels. We never move into a realm like some do of angelic worship and those kinds of things. These are created beings that have a purpose in encouraging and supporting the church, a force of God. But it is also important for us to understand, just like here in Revelation, we read about angels over and over again. Last week, we covered the first six trumpet blasts, the final preliminary judgments before the final judgment of God arrives in the the consequent uh, chapters or the subsequent chapters. And we have the angels blowing these six trumpets We see how the prayers of the saints before the throne play this important role in ushering in the final warnings before judgment comes. And now, like with the seven seals, um, in Revelation 10 and 11, there's again this interlude, this moment where we get to peer behind the curtain and see how God acts. And this will encourage us to know how He acts on our behalf even today. So we're going to be in Revelation 10 and 11. You can open up your Bibles there with me. And I'm going to start reading the first seven verses of Revelation 10. Let's read it together. In Revelation 10 verse 1, it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay." But that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. No more delay. The angel of God has come down and the time is now. God is acting on the prayers of the church. He is acting on every promise he has made and that he spoke through his prophets. God is faithful to his promises. Let's go ahead and pray this morning, and we're going to get stuck into Revelation 10 and 11. Lord, we just thank you right now for your presence. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is present in this building right now to speak to each of us, to reveal yourself to us, Lord, and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are opening our hearts and minds to perceive spiritually the things that the natural man or the natural woman cannot perceive. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the future that we have in you. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen, amen. I'm not sure if, if I'm the only one, but I, but, but I believe that I'm not. Um, that, that if it feels like they have a week or sometimes it's even a month or maybe even a season where you feel like just everything is going wrong. Any of you had a week like that recently where you're like, what else? You literally get to that point where you're like, what else? can go wrong at this point. And just when you think that, another three things go wrong. Can I have an amen? Right, we're with, we're together this morning, right? We have seasons, we have moments, we have times like this where where it just feels like all hell has broken loose and like the devil is throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, at us. When you have one of these moments, it can be completely overwhelming. You can wonder where God is. You can wonder whether or not you've done something wrong. You can wonder whether or not the devil is just out to get you today. 
And for us as a church, as we've been pioneering and we've been making decisions to move forward and to, and, and, and to expand our church and to just, we've literally in the last few weeks, maybe six weeks, we've overhauled literally every process we have as a church. We want to be a sharpened tool in the hand of God. We want to do exactly what He's called us to do. And on that process, there's been resistance. There's been, there's been attack. We've ultimately felt that, that the enemy has done everything he could to hinder us in this process. And then on top of that, everything else that you think or couldn't even think would go wrong goes wrong. When you're a parent and you get five missed calls from your boy's school, you know, all kinds of things run through your mind. And I immediately phoned the school back. This happened this last week. I think it was on, on Monday or Tuesday. And I got a phone call from the school. And I, I, all these phone calls. And I phoned them back. And I said, what is wrong? And they said, you've got to come immediately. Because one of your boys, Leo, um, who's the oldest of my twin boys, has got an acacia seed stuck in his ear. All right? Like, that's what I'm dealing with. And, um, and so I'm like, what are you? So apparently, one of his friends ran up behind him and stuck a seed in his ear and pushed it to see how deep it could go. And, and now he's got, and if you've ever seen an acacia seed, it comes out of a pod, and it's quite a hard shell seed. So it's not just like a soft seed that you can get a hold of in some way or another. And so I, you know, track, I leave what I'm doing, and I track all, all the way to school, and, um, and I'm trying to get the seed out of his ear. But, you know, before I go through the process of taking him to an ENT and specialists and, and hospitals and all those things, you know, I'm like, he... They, he asked me when I was trying to help him. So I go there and I'm trying to help my son. And he asked me, Dad, are you a professional? I said, I'm a professional dad. Um, so, so, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get this out. And, um, and I thought, let me just try it. And so my solution was that the seed happened to be exactly the same size as his ear canal, unfortunately. And so, and so what my plan was, was to take a tweezer and to just open the canal a little bit, tilt his head sideways, let gravity do its work, and then shake his head, Okay. And so at one point, I've got him standing. He's got his head over to the side. I've got the tweezer in with one hand, my, head, my hand on the other side of his head so that I can shake it. And after it you know, didn't come out for a while, I started praying. And what I didn't realize was at that time, like, you know, one of the teachers came around the corner, and I was holding his head sideways, shaking him, going, Jesus, please let it come out, you know? Like, and I'm sure the teachers were like, oh, that's what the problem has been. Um, and so this is just life. We all face these moments and these, and these difficulties. Three days and four doctors later, they had to remove the, the seed in the operating room. He had to go under anesthetic, and he had to go into theater, and they had to remove it that way. And, uh, and so I'm not sure if the whole seed episode was a demonic attack or just the reasoning ability of an average six-year-old. But the point is, the point is that we don't always understand the resistance that we face in doing what God has called us to do. Have you ever noticed that the moment you decide to step out in faith for God, you face resistance? The moment you say, tomorrow morning, I haven't been to church in years, but tomorrow morning I'm going to church, you'll have a flat tire, or the traffic will come. We had people that, that we tried to, we prayed to come to church for, for months and months. The family was here, they were praying for their father, and that day he got into church and it happened to be a cycle race and they couldn't find their way through and they said, okay, well, we're too late now, let's go home. And we were like, we've been praying so much to get them here. We face resistance when we step out. When you say, I'm going to give into the kingdom, I'm gonna give to the church this month, I'm gonna do it, then all of a sudden it feels like all hell breaks loose in your finances. 
We face resistance when we begin to, to answer the call of God in our lives, and it's meant to discourage us. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not, waste, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a battle. There is a wrestle. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 17, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. So make no mistake, there is a resistor. There is a hinderer. There is an enemy. There is somebody that would want to stop the momentum of your relationship with God and on your journey to fulfilling the plan and the purpose that he has for you. And oftentimes when you feel this kind of resistance, you can be deceived into thinking that it's all too much for me that I should rather stand back, that I should rather give up, that I should rather not try, or that I should take a step back because it's just too overwhelming. But in doing this, we deny the support we have from heaven, the support we have through the Holy Spirit, the protection we have. As the church, we do not fear the enemy. We do not fear Satan and his demons. I grew up with a very real understanding of of angels and of demons and of attacks and, and all these things. And I remember uh, from when I was younger all the way through to my early 20s when, when I would pray incessantly against spiritual attacks because I felt I was vulnerable. And many people still feel this way. They feel that if we talk about an enemy, it's scary because I might be vulnerable because maybe he's gonna get me. And I remember thinking that if I haven't lived correctly, if I haven't done enough good things, if I haven't, if I haven't prayed enough or read my Bible enough or gone to church enough, then I'm fair game for the devil. And that used to create an insecurity in me because how many of us ever have a perfect spiritual week or spiritual day or spiritual moment? We all still struggle, and in that struggle, I thought that I was giving the enemy room in my life. And so I felt vulnerable until God revealed to me the gospel, to the fact that every single thing that God ever needed to do to seal me up, I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise to make me the righteousness of God. I realized the devil has no claim over my life. And in that moment, I realized that faith is the shield that quenches every fiery dart of the enemy. And now, rather than worrying about what the devil's doing in my life, instead I focus on, on what God has done in my life and who I am in Christ. And I find that there's this, there's, I know that the enemy attempts, you know, attempts different attacks and different things to discourage me, but I also know the one in whom I believe and I am fully persuaded in the protection of his presence. Amen? So we're not vulnerable. We, we, we have the support of, of heaven with us as we, um, as we go about our lives. But what we need to understand is that the one that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That we have that authority over Satan through Jesus. Do you understand today that whatever you may be facing, whatever attacks are on your life, whatever resistance are coming against you, 
Do you understand that you have the support of heaven? That you have the power of the Holy Spirit and every angelic being that God has sent on your behalf is fighting for you. Whatever difficulty you are facing, you are not alone. Second Kings 6 shows this to us so beautifully. It says, when the servant of the man of God arose, this was Elisha, he rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And here's Elisha's statement of faith. You know why? He had spiritual sight. He could perceive spiritually. He said, do not be afraid of those. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see spiritually. So the Lord opened his eyes, the eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In the natural, they were surrounded, but in the spiritual, the ones that surrounded them were surrounded by the host of heaven's armies. Matthew 26, 53, when Jesus was taken to the cross, it says, are you not aware that I can call on my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, which is more than 72,000 angels symbolizing an infinite number. Don't you know that I have the host of heaven's armies at my disposal? Luke 22, verse 41, in a time of, of great agony, it says, Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's attempting to do the will of God, and there's agony in it, there's pain in it. Verse 43 says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, strengthening him. As he cried out to God for strength, God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus. And so the point here today is that if your faith is in Jesus, you're not alone. You have the host of heaven's armies for you. And when God is for you, who can be against you? So we don't give up hope. We ended Revelation 9 last week seeing that even after all the preliminary judgments that the people of this world did not repent, even though God delayed and delayed and sent warning after warning after warning, not wishing that any should perish, but now we come to the final moments of judgment. And here God again sends a mighty angel. It's the same angel we see in Revelation 5, holding the scroll saying, who is worthy to open it? And now he stands again with the open scroll in his hand, with his, his face shining like a sun and, and the brilliance of that, of that brightness shining through the clouds that he's wrapped in to create a rainbow over his head with his feet like pillars of fire, and he stands both on the, sand, on, on, on the earth and in the sea to represent the all-encompassing authority of God, and he comes down. This is what it looks like when God begins to answer your prayers. This is what it looks like when, when God sends an angel on your behalf. It looks powerful. It's almighty. It's all-encompassing. And so often we worry about the little things. Oh, well, will God help me to meet budget at the end of the month? Or, 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 or is God, can God help me in my relationship? And can look at the power of God and the support of heaven that is available to us. The church prayed and God is answering. The renewal of all things is at hand. He roars with a thunderous voice and seven thunders roar in reply. And we're not told what they say. It's to be understood at a future date. 
But many have said that this is foreshadowed in Psalm 29. If you go and read Psalm 29, it tells us about the thundering voice of God. The angel raises his right hand and swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created all things, that there will be no more delay. You see, sometimes we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and it feels like God isn't answering us. But we know that in exactly the right time, God shows up. And he shows up more powerfully than what you could have imagined. People have said God is never late, but he often misses opportunities to be early. And that's because he is at work in our lives, in our faith, in our patience. But when he shows up, he will keep his word. The angel makes an oath to say there's no more delay. The time is now. And in this context, the promise foretold to be fulfilled. There's no more intervention. There's no more restraint. The renewal of all things, the judgment of all things is at hand. Revelation 10, 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took this little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now we see John moving from this place where he's been a bystander witnessing this vision to actually becoming actively a part of it. You know why? Because this is the part that involves the church. This is the part that involves him as a part of the church. Now the church gets involved. John is called to prophesy. And we, he is called to take the scroll and to eat it in the same way that Ezekiel was told when God is commissioned Ezekiel as a prophet in Ezekiel 2 and 3. He said, take the scroll and eat it. It will be sweet in your mouth, but in your stomach it will be bitter. And God is now, in the same way, he has commissioned the church. He's commissioning John. He's commissioned us. Mark 16, 15 says, go into all the world, Jesus said, and preach the gospel to every creature. Go preach the word. Acts 1, 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Again, certain things are sealed up. The, the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, what we realize here is that God doesn't send his angels to strengthen you while you're sitting on the couch watching movies and eating potato chips. God doesn't send his, his angels. He doesn't fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you can post your devotions on Instagram. He doesn't move powerfully on your life so that you can feel good about yourself while eating lunch on a Sunday afternoon. No, what God intends for our lives is for us to be his witnesses, for us to take hold of the call of God to be able to make a difference. It's like a fire. Jeremiah spoke about this, and he represents the scripture so well because he says, God, you deceived me, and I have been deceived because you've called me to preach, and the tasted sweet in my mouth when you called me to preach. I tasted your word, and it was sweet, but wherever I go and I preach, I am reviled. I am excluded. I am insulted. I am persecuted for your sake. It's bitter in my stomach. And he says, but what will I do, God? Because if I say, I will speak in your name no more, this is in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. 
If I say I will speak no more in your name, I will not declare your word. Your word in my heart is like a fire. It is like a fire shut up in my bones and I grow weary of holding it in and indeed I cannot. He feels trapped because God causes his ministers to be flames of fire. When you've heard his word and you've tasted it, the sweetness of it, and that is what that scripture is saying, we cannot be witnesses of God until we have ingested his word. What will you witness of? A witness is someone who has seen, who has tasted, who knows. What will you see? What will you taste? What will you know? Unless you've eaten the word of God and felt the sweetness of it, that you've tasted and known that the Lord is good, of what will you witness unless you have eaten his word and it has become a part of you and the life-giving force of his word has arrived at every cell in your being. When you've eaten his word, it's sweet to the taste. But often as we preach, we're reviled and there's persecution that comes against us and And we're seeing this increasingly in our world, that the world is against Christianity, and that will only increase. In Revelation 1, uh, sorry, 11, 1, it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. What God is showing us here, there's a measuring of the temple which represents the church, those who worship there. And he is saying that even though there's a persecution that increases when we preach, even though it's bitter in the stomach, God knows his church, and there's protection there. In the midst, even though there's a trampling for 42 days, God preserves the church. He preserves that remnant. 42 months, 1,260 days, also known as a time and a time, times, and half a time. In essence, a reference to Daniel 8, verse 9 to 14, when it was a time of Jewish suffering as they will, were trampled until. And what it ultimately just says is that there is a brief period of persecution that will be faced before the end comes, before the time of restoration. A time, times, and half a time, a brief period of time until the restoration. So it's limited, but there's protection. Now we come to these two witnesses, and I'm going to finish here this morning. Revelation 11, 4 to 10 says, There were two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes them consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the time of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents or gifts because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, these two prophets are said to be two individuals, but in a larger sense represent the church. The witnesses, the witnesses that are called to testify As two individuals, this most probably symbolizes Moses and Elijah, 
since they in their Old Testament, in the Old Testament, performed these same miracles, calling down fire, praying for the sky to be shut up and for there to be no rain and the plagues of Egypt. In Malachi 4 verse 5, it even shows us, it says, before I will send you Elijah, sorry, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And this may even give us some insight as to why Satan and the angel Michael fought over the body of Moses. And it speaks about this in Jude 1 verse 9. In Matthew 17, 1 to 3, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So now they return as witnesses in sackcloth, which is a symbol of sorrow over sin. And they are protected like the church is protected as they give witness. And at a point when their witness is complete, the beast rises up and kills them. And their bodies lie in the street and they are, and the people of the world celebrate. Finally, we are rid of the church. Finally, in our attack, we have got victory. People often think they, in many nations, I know that historically, even philosophers have said in the future date, the church will be extinct. Does it look like the church is going extinct? We forcefully advance. But the world wants to be rid of the scorn of the church. The problem is, God is the head of the church. And He protects His people. He is the power of resurrection. Revelation 11, 11 says, But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Still, people right at the end getting saved because of the witness of Jesus, because of the witness of the church. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The language here is similar to Ezekiel 37 where God speaks to the valley of dry bones and causes them to rise up. If murder is your last resort, what do you do to people who can be raised from the dead? You see, we don't fear death as the church, but sometimes I worry that we don't know the power of God that works on our behalf, the support we have to do what God has called us to do, to be witnesses. We're caught up worrying about so many of the little things often left feeling defeated and deflated. But we are the church of Jesus Christ, supported by the host of heaven's armies. We are the witnesses of Jesus, charged with the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking God's word like a consuming fire, praying prayers that can open the skies. And we are not in a battle against the people of this world, but against Satan and his armies for the people of this world, for the lives and the souls of people. And we will never stop. We will never give up until we hear the same call that Moses and Elijah heard after being resurrected and all the faithful departed that have gone before us when God says, come up here, good and faithful servants, enter into your rest. If God is for us, church, 
Who can be against us? Who can be against us? We have the victory in Jesus' name. The more you believe this, the more you'll pray, the more you'll stand, the more grit you'll have, and the more you'll press into the support that you have from heaven. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?